Welcome to the PSA Palliative Care Masterclass Series, where we'll hear from guest speakers on palliative care, including pharmacist roles, timely access to medicines, and conducting meds checks and HMRs from a palliative care perspective. This project is jointly supported by funding from the South Australian and Commonwealth Governments through the Palliative Care 2020 Grants Program. In this episode of the PSA Palliative Care Masterclass, we talk to Chris Moy. He discusses a seven-step pathway in ACD planning. He discusses the documentation, the patient perspective, the GP perspective, tools that are used, the role of pharmacists, misunderstandings about palliative care and conversations and treatment plans, as well as examples of collaborative care and extended care paramedics, and the kind of medications that pharmacists and pharmacies should stock for palliative care plans with the patients. Chris Moy has many valuable insights to share from his experiences, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Moy. I'm a general practitioner, and I'm the AMA uh, Vice President, as well as being the President of AMA South Australia. Where do pharmacists currently fit into the palliative care multidisciplinary team? Um, I think the main part is that the pharmacist plays a very important role in uh, making sure that the steps as far as uh, the provision of medications uh, and possibly you know advice on particular medications that would be best in a certain situation uh, are, are, are integral parts of the the planning for the care of an individual who's under palliative care. Um, and so, you know, look, the, the issue with palliative care is that it is very much a, a, a multidisciplinary team effort. Um, everything has to kind of go right for a patient and quietly behind the background. Um, and if there's a failure at any step, then there's going to be a problem. So, for, for example, if, if, if a doctor fails to turn up or doesn't know their medications or kind of doesn't communicate properly, there'll be a problem. But to the same degree, if, if there isn't enough um, either sort of proper advice about information that, about medication that's actually available, that's actually the correct medication, and that it's available at the very time that it's needed, for example, because quite often palliative care is required on a weekend, uh, then, then we, we frankly drop the ball and the care of the patient's compromised and they can suffer at that point and that kind of goes against the whole point of what uh, the, the aim is. Um, our next key pa- question is about the patient perspective. So knowing what medications might be used and how, what would be a different experience in the RACF versus a home compared to acute hospital? Um, look, in RACF you get a lot more uh, support in respect of the fact that there are usually uh, registered nurses available um, who can support the the sort of the the um, the link between the doctor and the pharmacist, um, and also frankly be an advocate for the patient as well in terms of actually observing the the you know symptoms of a patient um, and resident um, and you know watching for distress or symptoms and then communicating with firstly myself, but also the pharmacist um, who can then then also offer advice about you know what medications would be a good idea but also medications that would be um, available at the time because the problem is, is again on a weekend sometimes just having the medication really available at that time is the critical thing and 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 so you know we have to join the dots on all these things they may seem simple the world isn't so simple unfortunately because there are practicalities involved and, and having that sort of uh, link across from the uh, general practitioner to the um, uh, through the through the registered nurse 
to the pharmacist is often very helpful. What would be your advice to a pharmacist who is approached by a person with questions about advanced care directives? I, I think what's really great is if um, uh, patients and their, their, the supporting the carers and their families have had ongoing relationships with the the GP, for example, and also the um, pharmacist. So there's this longitudinal care and that they're working as a team. Um, and, and quite often, you know, pharmacists become the confidants of, of patients, uh, the people that they rely on. Um, and, you know, there, there may be times, for example, that they, they, uh, a patient or the family have, are having trouble, um, you know, um, frankly, catching up with their GP, uh, maybe because the GP's away or is, is not available. And, you know, the pharmacist may be the person that the, that the family and the, and the um, patient actually talk to and, you know, disclose, for example, that they're really struggling or, for example, they're turning up for medications to try and control pain, for example, or that they disclose the fact that they're really depressed about, you know, a diagnosis that's been given given to them or, or distressed about it. Um, that's probably a really great time for a bit of a phone call sometimes and a bit of a chat between the pharmacist and the GP, um, well, with, the, with, the, with the permission of the, the patient, of course. This one's about the GP perspective. Do all GPs prepare these documents, the 7th step and ACD, with their palliative care patients? Um, look, the first thing to understand is an advanced care directive, that's the ACD, is actually the patient's document. Um, that, that is a document, it's a legal document in South Australia, but um, in, it's a document which is essentially representative of firstly the wishes and values and of the patient, uh, or the appointment of somebody who is going to act for them at a time and place they can no longer make those decisions. That is when they, they have impaired decision-making capacity. So they can't make the decision. Now, so the idea is that this document basically represents them, either in actually recording in, in clear instructions of what they want or what is most important to them, or actually documenting the person that will act for them. And it's very important that that substitute decision maker, the person they appoint, is has a clear role a clear understanding of their role, which is really to act as if they're in the shoes of the individual with all the information that's available to them. So the key thing is about advanced care directives. An advanced care directive is really the patient's document. It represents them. And, and they really have to go through their own legal process when they're still able to. Uh, that means they still have decision-making capacity to either write down their wishes and values or appoint the individual they want to be their substitution maker and then uh, get it signed and witnessed as per the, the legal requirements. Now, the, the doctor um, is uh, quite often will have a role in that because they, they will, you know, the, the individuals or the families will come to them to sort of get advice about the sort of, particularly the medical instructions that may be most helpful in those documents. So, so and that, that often happens. And, but ultimately, it's not just a medical document. It's about them as a person as well. And I think people over-medicalise it. It's about what matters to them. So, for example, I mean, if somebody says to, says to me that, you know, um, the most important thing is that they would like to stay at home if at all possible, that's not really a medical decision. That's actually a value judgment about what they'd like to do, what that they value. That helps me make a call about whether to try and keep them at home if at all possible, and that's not always possible, or to try my hardest to do that. Um, or if it's not a big issue, then you know maybe hospital, palliative care, or an aged care facility may be useful. So that's the advanced care directive. 
The seven step pathway document is a different document altogether. Uh, all it is, is a glorified uh, clinical instructions, which are really step uh, clinician through the doctor responsible for the patient uh, or the clinician responsible for the patient, steps them through the, the legal steps that they need to do to end up with very clear clinical instructions for anybody that may have to respond to the patient at another time and place. And their instructions about things like whether resuscitation is appropriate, uh, whether other sort of active care may be appropriate, like for example, you know, intravenous fluids or um, antibiotics or those sort of things, uh, that whether that, that's what would be in line with the patient's wishes, either documented in the advanced care directive or, uh, you know, uh, related directly to the, the doctor, um, and also uh, instructions about whether they want to go to hospital again. So they're very clear. So if you think about it, what it is, is a person will write their own advanced care directive, have it signed and witnessed, point who they want. But um, I, as a doctor, will then go, gee, look, from that, let's sit down and kind of work out clear instructions so that, say, particularly in the middle of the night, um, you deteriorate, uh, that... Uh, we the the ambulance or the the doctor who comes in to sees you sees you or um, or when you end up in an emergency department that they have very clear idea about from what your wishes and values are what we need to do to respond so is it a res to resuscitate or is it to send you to hospital or is it to keep you at home or is it to give you antibiotics or or is it just palliation just to make sure that for you that the main thing is you don't want any of that. And many a time we'll have instructions to say, I don't want resuscitation. I don't want any surgery. I don't want intensive care unit. I don't want um, to go to hospital. And if we can document all that, that helps uh, me as a clinician then to write out the medication instructions, which is relevant to pharmacy, obviously, um, that are useful uh, for the patient. But also it's very clear that a responder coming in goes in the middle of the night can go, gee, this is what they want. Let's try to do this to try and comply with their wishes. If the seven step document indicates a person is not for transfer to hospital, um, how to trigger anticipatory prescribing and alerting the pharmacy to ensure all medicines are on hand if needed for terminal phase and avoiding unnecessary hospitalizations. Well, ultimately, the, the thing about um, palliative care is it's complicated because there's not always the same playbook all the time. That's the problem. And you never know exactly the course of an individual's condition. And, and notoriously, particularly because people are often at home, they often will deteriorate at the odd hours. Um, so the, the critical element is, is to start thinking about the next step forward. And the art of the art of um, palliative care is to anticipate what the next step will be. Um, and, and, you know, good people who do palliative care kind of can see what the next thing will be, what the next crisis will be, which will often be in the middle of the night. So one of the best things that can be done, for example, is to start to anticipate, look, if, if you're not going to send somebody to hospital, if their wish is not to go to hospital, or if they're not to be resuscitated, um, it's the critical element is that the point of palliative care is comfort and dignity of that individual. So you really have to anticipate if you, they're not, the aim is to keep them at home and they're not going to be resuscitated. What are you going to do next? That's the real key question always. What are you going to do next? And that person needs comfort. I mean, they really need to come. That's what I would want. I, I, you know, if I'm going to stay at home, what I want is to make sure that I'm comfortable um, and that, you know, any symptoms can be relieved to the maximum degree. And that, that's really where the job of the, first up the, the doctor to make sure that they write up medications that are 
uh, going to alleviate the patient's symptoms to settle them down. So for pain, it might be morphine or some opiate. Uh, if it's shortness of breath, again, probably an opiate. If it's anxiety and agitation, it may be some sort of um, um, uh, sedative like uh, clonazepam or, or midazolam. Um, it may be uh, sort of psychotic symptoms or you know those sort of symptoms, of which there's a bit of debate, but things like haloperidol may be relevant. Um, and then obviously the, the other one that's often discussed is things like uh, nausea and vomiting, um, and that's things like Maxilon and other medications like that. I mean, what you're trying to anticipate is what is likely to happen to that individual, and it does depend on the condition. Because then what you can do is start to write down medications in an aged care facility it will be in their prn medications you can write this down um, or in a uh, out in the community it may be to set them up to make sure that they've got these medications ordered in available maybe even um, uh, all syringed and ready to go and that a butterflies put in and that these medications are on medication orders in the home so that they're available for the patient so they're ready to go because really the thing is is I always look about what I would want. I don't want to be waiting for a doctor to turn up to give me a medication then. I've got pain and I don't want to go to hospital and I don't want to be, um, you know, nobody's going to resuscitate me. I'm deteriorating. And the poor carer there is sitting there watching me suffer. Really, you must have something to respond at that point. Anticipate you prescribing is the ability to... um, anticipate what's going to happen next in terms of deterioration of symptoms and setting up the medication protocol ready to go um, in terms of prescribing from my point of view and of course I think from the pharmacy point of view making sure those medications are available when they're needed. What tools do you rely on as a GP to guide your thinking? So the SPICT tool, Karnofsky performance status? Um, look um, yeah all of them are in play um, and I think but ultimately it is actually to some degree in the community quite often it's actually a little bit of common sense as well because they're not going to be sort of things that uh, for example you've got to remember the person that's actually going to give the medication for example is often going to be the 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 carer for example Um, and and really you are going to have to rely on a bit of common sense just you know um, whether the person actually is verbalizing pain and and they're distressed or um, or whether they're the um, 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 uh, family are sort of feeling it. and I, I understand all these uh, these tools are available but I think a lot of it's common sense as well but I, I do support the use of those those tools they're, they're great and I think they're really helpful particularly in communication between um, healthcare professionals but they're also but in, in the, the other part is actually the practical use of them in the community and I think they're I think ultimately there needs to be common sense in terms of the prescribing and 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 the actual uh, um, provision of medication direct at the time when it's needed to patients. People often have a misunderstanding about palliative care and that it's only appropriate when all else has come to an end, i.e. for cancer treatment. How do you as a GP introduce palliative care as a discussion with your patients? Is this a conscious decision or an evolution of a conversation or treatment plan? I think you have to ideally know the person and, and, and pick the time to some degree. Now, certainly I think uh, there are tools to help that. Um, there are things like the SPIC criteria and things like that. So S-P-I-C-T, there's a tool that's a clinical uh, tool to sort of um, uh, determine, help 
a clinician determine when a person may be close to the end of their life or likely to die in the next 12 months or so. I mean, there's obviously the question that's always been there, uh, would you be surprised if this part person died in the next 12 months or would you be surprised if this person was still alive in the next 12 months? And there's sort of questions you can ask and they're quite commonly used as uh, sort of like a little little litmus tests of whether you should be definitely considering um, um, discussions about end of life. Um, the there is actually a bit of an interplay between the GP, for example, and what's happening as far as treatment. But ultimately, I think the thing, the whole point of, oh, look, I know there are all these definitions about palliative care, which is that that, that it's basically uh, care for a person with a life-limiting illness, uh, which can be either chronic or, or acute, applying holistic care, including psychosocial elements. Um, for me, it's about really common sense and understanding that what you don't want is firstly somebody who's likely to have life limiting illness to suffer and, 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 and to support them as much as possible through the final chapter of their life so that they can live it with quality and with the greatest self-determination and that also there's the least damage to the family and carers around them because they're the ones who are going to have to live with it and also to make sure that it's as least medicalised as possible. So even though there is a requirement for a holistic team around them, often of healthcare providers, um, doctors, pharmacists, um, you know, nurses, um, um, uh, allied health OT and uh, physios and a whole number of other people, which actually does become extremely complicated. The, the main thing is to try and do that job as seamlessly as possible so that the person can actually get on with living as much of their life at the end in the way they want. And... Um, and I think the the thing then is to understand that there can be an overlap. You know, you, you get back to symptoms. So this person will know that they've got cancer quite often, but they're still getting chemotherapy, for example, um, or that they have um, really, you know, severe chronic obstructive airways disease with shortness of breath. And they know that, that, that it's close to the end of their life, you know, that they're really struggling. Um, I think they can still get this treatment. I mean, they can get treatment for that. They can still have some level of active treatment for that. But I think really what our job then is to start to introduce the idea that, you know, there will come a time where you will die and you have to say the word die sometimes, just once, and then be honest about it, but also say, look, I'm going to be there with you to the end and that I would like to support you in the sort of symptoms that you've got that you're struggling with and also support you in any other way that's possible through to the end. And I think uh, so that gets to the point that there can be an overlap between, you know, people having still, you know, active treatment, which may still prolong their life to some degree with cancer or with other conditions or uh, to alleviate the symptoms of those conditions. But also that we start to think about their symptom control so they have good quality of life, you know, as that, you know, as they transition into that, that, that phase where there may not be such good active treatment. And also that we support all other elements, which are psychosocial and other physical and, and social, you know, the, the things that really matter sometimes that are not just medical. Um, are there any other key messages, particularly focusing on medicines, i.e. off-label use, challenges that COVID has highlighted in terms of palliative care that you wanted to share? Not really. It's, it's just the fact that I think um, COVID has made things more complicated because of the fact that sometimes we've had to work a little bit more remotely to reduce the interactions a little bit. And, and also, and that's partly between health professionals, but also obviously with uh, patients themselves um, and their carers. So you've been a bit at arm's length. 
um, and that's made things a little bit more difficult, particularly in terms of getting medications and pharm pharmacy, uh, sorry, prescriptions to where they're required. So it has ha actually sometimes made it logistically more difficult. But um, having said that, I think it's also galvanised us a little bit to uh, work together a little bit more, trying to improve the processes uh, and policies a little bit more. And also the, the move towards, um, you know, uh, electronic systems. Uh, obviously, electronic prescribing is, is being progressed at the moment. It has its complexities. But I think it's really forced us to think about um, getting out of the old ways of doing things a little bit more and make things um, a little bit more seamless. So electronic prescribing has complexities, which I do understand, particularly for the pharmacies and pharmacists, I think. But the flip side is, is in the long run, they're going to be much, much better for the patients, I think, um, in terms of um, the, first up, the, um, you know, convenience um, and, um, you know, not needing to run around to pick up bits of paper um, and not having bits of paper flying around in, by, by mail or being faxed and those sort of things. Uh, but also, um, and, and it will make things a little bit more seamless. Uh, but also potentially in terms of medication management as well. So when we go to electronic prescribing in a little while, there'll, uh, there'll be this um, script list. So this will occur in the cloud, uh, which will be the closest thing we'll have to a, a communal, communal source of truth about what a patient's medications are. So, for example, I'll, I as the prescriber will be able to sort of have a sense of what they're on and so will the pharmacist. And, and that will actually improve... Um, uh, safety and and um, uh, overall sort of uh, coordination of a patient's medications, which I think is extremely exciting, because again, convenience will be one thing, but also safety as well. So, for example, if I'm prescribing something, I know that they're on something else, uh, or the pharmacist will know they're on something else, which I think is incredibly exciting. So that's a that's a really positive thing that's happening. But I think that's in amongst a whole number of I think wonderful can do things that have occurred in COVID between all health practitioners because we really have to overcome some sort of um, areas of uh, where we've been stagnant for a long time in terms of the old ways. And I think hopefully this will actually improve things for palliative care in the future. This one you might need to think about for a minute, which is fine, but it was if you have an example of collaborative care between a pharmacist, nurse or nurse practitioner and a GP. Um, just one really great example to share if you have one. In terms of palliative care, I'll, I'll, I'll just ponder for a second. Um, I mean, there's certainly been really, I mean, certainly at the uh, facilities that I work at, there's been really good uh, collaboration um, and it's pretty much seamless as far as the provision of medication there. And we have a great relationship with the pharmacist there. And that's probably where the, the nub of it is. It's been the most helpful, really. Um, the... In terms of um, you know other situations where we've had good collaboration, well, I can remember uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll give you uh, and I'll, I'll obviously de-identify, but you know cases where I've been caught on the um, hop on a Friday with an individual that want no longer wanted um, active care, um, being able to get the 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 um, the palliative care team involved and and the, through the through the through the nurse who was coordinating care and therefore get the registered nurse involved. This person really wanted to die at home. Um, one of the big problems was actually then just making sure that they had all their medications ready to go. Um, um, in this case, it wasn't pain. It was actually um, more uh, shortness of breath and agitation, which was going to be far more of a problem. We had to set this medication up. I knew it was going to deteriorate on the 
uh, over the weekend and and if we didn't get this done this individual would go to hospital which was actually one of the things they wanted the least um, so in that situation there I was able to go down coordinate with the the um, the palliative care team, the nursing team, who were able to bring in um, some equipment and also um, some uh, increased uh, care over the weekend. But then also what was possible was that I was able to set up the medications, made sure, and this was the most important thing from the pharmacy point of view, that we actually made sure that these medications were available through the pharmacy that they used. And, um, and I wrote up the medication orders and the and we we were able to make sure the medications were available that evening which was before it could go pear-shaped over the weekend for the patient and because of that this this patient passed away you know in peace and 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 they, they were they they had been um struggling for a long time and and uh they were they, they, they were ready for this uh, on the, on the sunday as i recall um and um you know for that what what it meant for them was that by, although it was complicated and we had to work as a team to get this all done and the medications were there and the medications were all written up, that the individual had the reassurance that everything had been set up for them. Second thing is that the medications were there and that the, 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 his, his wife was actually quite familiar and comfortable with how to provide the medications and had that reassurance. They had the backup over the weekend, which is a phone call away from me. Um, and everything had been set up. And what it meant is it was all set up. We got out of the way. The medical team had done their job. We were ready to go. Um, and we'd actually sort of done, did what we needed to do, which then really meant that the emotional journey that needed to happen at the end, which I think is incredibly important, uh, that it's calm and, and to as, you know, to the, to the, in the direction that the patient and the family would like, happened really seamlessly. And so the memory of that individual dying was obviously first up, the patient got what they wanted and they, they died in, with comfort and dignity, but also the memory of the way that their loved one died for, for his wife and the rest of the family was um, not one of uh, medicalized, um, high intervention, uh, problematic thing where people you know made mistakes or that there were there were all it was it was really calm death where you know they if I could put it in simple terms it was for them something that was uh, not distressing at all and they could remember that they feel connected with the person who died at the end and that that mattered because for that family and that his wife it meant that they didn't have a traumatic memory of what happened they just remembered their 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 lovely um, husband or their lovely father dying with dignity and that is the whole aim of this thing the next question is about extended care paramedics and their role in end of life do they carry all the medicines needed for terminal phase and are they able to administer the patient's own medication yeah look we've worked really well with um Extended care paramedics, they have an incredibly important role because unfortunately, I mean, the reality is, is there isn't resources for people who are dying to have people there every 24 hours a day uh, to support carers, for example. And if somebody deteriorates and they want to stay at home, um, there will often be the need for, uh, you know, somebody to be called. Now, extended care paramedics uh, have that sort of unusual role of first up being able to respond in the middle of the night. They do carry all these medications and they have the equipment. 
And if they're given the right instructions, they can provide these medications and stay with the patient, set things up and get them through to the morning, which might make all the difference so that we can take, you know, the, other, the, the medical team can take over. So the classic thing would be somebody who is um, dying, uh, has, uh, you know, everything sort of set up for them. And they may have an advanced care directive saying they want to stay home and that's their wish. They have a seven-step pathway, which is clear in that they would prefer to stay at home and not, would not want to transfer hospital unless their symptoms cannot be managed. They have the history there and um, other information um, there at the, at the patient's home. And if and they get a call, say if they deteriorate over the weekend with increased pain and they're dying. Um, the, uh, the carer can call the ambulance service, they can be triaged through to the extended care paramedics who can arrive and then assess, if they know what to do with the symptom pathway, they know that the wish of the patient is not to go to hospital and they're clear about it, then they can start to provide palliative care medications, call up the palliative care team as well, um, set up um, medications, uh, doses of medications or even a pump to get through them through to the morning. And then we can take over. And that makes the difference really, because first up we can have all the, the instructions and we can have all the medications there and we can have all the other bits and pieces, but sometimes you need a responder in the middle of the night. And that's where an extended care parent can be incredibly effective in, in making a difference to you know, try to provide care that the patient wants. And we have a concept of a care medication list. Which of these medicines that pharmacies should keep on hand in order to respond to a new palliative script? The CML requires local collaboration between prescribers and pharmacists to agree on what medicines to stock, and the Adelaide PHN has recently undertaken a project to develop a CML, but what would you recommend doctors and pharmacists do to develop an agreed list where one does not already exist? Yeah, and I do understand the, the matter of stocking being, a, being, a, being an issue, obviously, because of, you know, there is a cost to stocking medications and there are medications that expire. Um, certainly, the, really, the, the, the medications are in, in five um, um, main groups um, that I think are generally basic. Everything outside of that is a little bit uh, less important. Um, the uh, SA Health have produced an anticipated prescribing protocol um, which I think is extremely useful to be the basis of this because it was designed particularly for um, doctors to prescribe med palliative care medications in the middle of the night to patients in the hospital, but it's ex ex exactly the same in the community as well. So um, it provides advice on some of these medications, and there is also a core medications list that's been developed by uh, uh, Paul Tate in, in Southern um, uh, Adelaide Health, LHN, previously and that's been very helpful but re really they're in five groups so obviously the the opiate analgesic medications so that's the morphine like medications um, and I think the alternative to that is probably something like uh, fentanyl um, or hydromorphone uh, which has some complexities but the opiate medications which are going to be useful for pain and shortness of breath then there's going to be the anti-emetic medications for vomiting so things like maxillon and the like then there's um, the, the anxiolytic medications for, uh, you know, when you become distressed and anxious, um, that things like uh, clonazepam and midazolam. Uh, then after that, there is uh, more sort of terminal agitation. Um, again, there's controversy about the use of these some of these medications, but the medications, the classic one there is haloperidol. Um, and, and finally for, um, well, we'll just call it gurgly breathing, which is really part of dying. It's one of the 
I think one of the most distressing parts for the family if they're not used to this, that gurgly breathing and the chain stoke breathing that occurs. So that's um, uh, things like buscapan, uh, which are helpful for um, management of the secretions. The, really, they're the sort of five major groups of medications which are commonly used. And I think if, um, first up, that most pharmacies have them because you know I'm sure that most pharmacies would have somebody who's undergoing palliative care at any given time. Um, but if they can have them, that'd be great. But I think ideally then work in with your your local doctor to kind of work out what their preference is. Because obviously there are preferences, for example, between clonazepam and midazolam and um, other, um, you know, sometimes the opiates as well, although I think they're pretty set generally. Um, they're the sort of main groups, the five major groups of medications that are useful to for, for from a doctor's point of view to be stocked because they're commonly used in the terminal phase of particularly of palliative care. Now, I'll just ask if there's anything else you'd like to share that you think would be important for pharmacists to know with regards to seven-step care pathway, ISD, or experiences with palliative care patients. Oh, look, that, that really... Um, no, no, I mean, palliative care is difficult because I think I said before that it's, it, it's a multidisciplinary team that's required, which is often spread across, uh, you know, across... Uh, the divide where sometimes communication lines don't always go brilliantly um, and it, it, it's hard it's they're not nat I mean they're not always natural um, but you know I think that the collaboration between um, the pharmacy and general practice and palliative care as a multi-d team is really crucial for the patient and I think for me I get back to the fact that if we can work together really well we actually become uh, first up, we make sure we don't drop the ball, which is actually the problem. Quite often you drop the ball along the sequence of events and that, that will be the thing that will actually lead to the patient either becoming distressed and either, you know, getting, you know, we therefore kind of fail in what we're trying to do in terms of trying to make sure they're comfortable, but also they may end up in hospital, which may be, you know, for care because there's no other option. Um, if we can try to minimise the drop ball, but also work as a team, it is one of the, it's the archetype, it's the absolute pinnacle of the way that we should all collaborate for the patient. And if we do that, we actually become almost ideally as invisible as possible. So as I said, that, that the patient with the family can get on with what they really need, which is to, to die in comfort and dignity. And for me, it's closing that last chapter um, in the way they want to for themselves so that they can feel at peace when they die but so the rest of the family can see that that happened as well so their memory of their loved one will be one not of the distress and you know the the, the sort of the, the gaps in care and the things that happened because we kind of messed up during the end but their memory can be of you know their, their loved one dying and that they can cherish that and uh, and, and, and understand that uh, you know that their, their life was not sort of you know kind of the memory of that that loved one it was not kind of um there wasn't this negative aspect at the very end thank you for listening to the psa palliative care masterclass series we hope that you have enjoyed this episode